Hello, and welcome to Bird of the Week. It's a podcast about birds, released on a non-weekly basis. Episode 31, Owls, Who Gives a Hoot? Today we begin with the question, who, who, who indeed are the owls? I've been keen to do this episode for a while because in owls we find a true miracle of evolution. Every inch of the owl has been adapted to become a silent nocturnal killing machine. They are the ninjas of the night, swooping on silent wings to snatch their prey. Now, I'm sure most people out there are familiar with one type of owl or another. And that's because they can be found everywhere, from the Arctic Circle, North America, South America, Europe, Africa, Asia, and Australia. Not Antarctica. They've conquered every habitat, from desert and Arctic tundra to lush tropical jungles, the Australian bush, the American prairies, and even suburbia. And being ubiquitous, they have worked their way into our cultural imagination. Not always consistently. In the West, they are a symbol of wisdom, the classic wise owl. It's a tradition stretching all the way back to ancient Greece, with Athena, the goddess of wisdom, having the owl as her sigil. In Africa, they are harbingers of death. In Japan, they are lucky talismans. In India, they were a sign of wealth and prosperity, and to the Native Americans, they were a type of boogeyman who captured misbehaving children. The owl has been many things to many peoples, but we don't need myth and folklore to make the owl fascinating, because as we will discover, they are amazing birds, and today, we are going to find out everything there is to know about them. Again, that's definitely hyperbole. I don't know why I always say that. I mean, we we will find out some things, though, so let's swoop on in. Owls are beautiful creatures. When perched, they have an instantly recognisable silhouette. They have rounded heads, elongated oval bodies, flat faces, with large, luminous eyes that can sometimes look almost human. Their plumes do have some variation, but generally they are neutral tones, browns, creams, blacks, greys, and they're usually mottled or streaked, all the better to help them with their camouflage. One notable exception is the snowy owl of the high arctic region. The males are almost totally pure white, while the females have black scolloping on their chest and wings. Many owls also have ear tufts on top of their head, which either look like horns or eyebrows that would make John Howard proud. Uh, For those non-Australians out there, John Howard is one of our former Prime Ministers with a set of rather robust caterpillar eyebrows. Fun fact, no one really knows what the ear tufts are for. They're less ears and more like crests. The leading theory is that they are part of the bird's camouflage, which... Sounds counterintuitive. I mean, generally, if you want to make a bird fabulous, the first thing you do is give it a crest. But the theory seems to be 
that when the bird is threatened, they have a tendency to make the tufts more erect. This may assist the owl to break up their silhouette and better blend into the background. At least that's the theory. I'm always more on board with the idea that the bird wants to be gorgeous, and my word, are they gorgeous. Owls are predatory birds, and their primary weapon is their powerful talons. Unlike eagles and falcons, owls have downturned, more narrow bills, and they tend to eat their prey whole rather than tearing it into pieces, although they will do that if it's too big. When it comes to size, there is a lot of variation between owls. Most are what we would think of as medium-sized birds. The most common and widely distributed owl in the world is the barn owl, and it is about 30 centimetres long with a wingspan between 80 and 95 centimetres, which is pretty typical owl size, smack dab in the middle. The biggest owl, though, Blankiston's fish owl, is on average about twice that size in every dimension and can weigh over four kilograms. They're a native of the Manchuria region of China. Meanwhile, the smallest owl is an itty-bitty baby that could fit in the palm of your hand, the aptly named elf owl, coming in at just 13 centimetres long and weighing 40 grams, about the size of a sparrow, which makes it about 100 times lighter than the fish owl. But most owls are around the barn owl size. Now, how many owls are there? Well, as always, it depends on who you ask. There are around 250-ish species, and all owls belong to the order Stryformes. This word has a Greek origin, strigos, which means nightbird. And famously, the owl is nocturnal, although there are some exceptions. There are always exceptions. The northern hawk owl and the northern pygmy owl are both day hunters. The pygmy owl in particular preys on small songbirds, so it needs to be out and about when its food of choice is. We will meet some other nocturnal exceptions a little later. But first, let's break down this owl order. Within the broader order of owls, there are two families. You have the barn owls and you have the true owls. Now, do not let that word true fool you. Barn owls are still owls, they're not fake owls. The word true pops up in taxonomy quite a bit. For example, there is a family of true parrots. But when you hear the word true, think of it as meaning typical. And in that sense, barn owls are atypical when compared to the rest of the family. There are only 20 or so species that belong to the barn owl family, so they represent less than 10% of the total owl population. There aren't a whole lot of things that mark them out as being different, but there are two obvious ones. Barn owls have distinct faces. They all have what is usually described as a heart-shaped face. As such, they are sometimes known as sweetheart owls, making them the perfect Valentine's Day gift. And as I always say, nothing says I love you like a nocturnal predatory bird. Barn owls also never have ear tufts. Although, to be fair, many true owls don't either. There are only about 50 or so species who do. The main tufted genre are the horned, screech, and scoop owls. And finally, barn owls don't hoot. They tend to make more of a screeching noise, which can be confusing. So just remember, screech owls hoot, barn owls screech. And it's a screech which can be a little unsettling. Roll the audio! (laughs) 
like I said, unsettling. Sadly, the Sweetheart Owl sounds more like a domestic murder. Because of the barn owl's preference for nesting in disused human sites like barns, lofts, church steeples or other ruins, their unnatural screams have at times lent places a reputation for being haunted. They can be creepy dudes. Speaking of creepy, within the barn owl family there are three odd little species called the bay owls. Now, I mention these guys because they look like aliens. Their faces have elongated into an almost U or V shape, and they have soulless, pitch-black eyes, the shape of almonds. They're a good deal smaller than most owls and live mainly in thick jungle in Southeast Asia and Africa. The bay owls are shy, almost totally nocturnal, and because they live in largely inaccessible places, we know little about them. But barn owls, they be. Now, the owl's closest relatives seem to be the other birds of prey, the eagles and the hawks. Their exact placement within the wider avian family tree is still debated, but they seem to be an early offshoot of what would become the main raptor order. Which, as a bird of prey themselves, kind of makes sense. Okay, so I think we've got a grasp on this family. So, let's start to look at some of their key features. When it comes to owls, there are four things worth mentioning. Well, okay, there are more than four, but these are the four I'm leading with. Their excellent vision, their excellent hearing, their silent flight, and their ability to turn their heads over 180 degrees, almost right the way around. It is sometimes said that if you were to walk around an owl, it would keep its body still while swiveling its head, tracking your movement, until its head twisted right off. But we will come to that in a minute. First, though, their vision. Owls have remarkably good sight. I've seen it written that they could theoretically see a light given off by a match that was a kilometre away. Now, I have no idea how they worked this out, and I doubt it's ever been tested, but it sounds cool. One of the reasons why their vision is so good is because they have relatively large eyes as a ratio to their body size. Most medium-sized owls have eyes that are about the same size as a human's, to give you some idea. Want another indication of how big these eyes are? Their eyes alone contribute about 5% to the owl's total body mass. Like many predatory animals, the owl's eyes face forward. Just like we people, it gives them binocular vision and good depth perception. All the better for impaling small animals with their talons. As natural low-light hunters, you would expect them to have good vision. But because their eyes are so big and their heads are so small, they had to make some trade-offs. In particular, it has forced their eyes to adopt an unusual shape. While on the outside, they have the same round shape we would expect. But owls don't really have eyeballs. They have eye tubes. They are long and cylindrical in shape. Now, there is a consequence to having big old tube-like eyes, and that is the owl cannot swivel its eyes in its socket. They are fixed in place and fused to sclerotic rings. Sclerotic, it's a fancy word that means something that's rigid. It's basically part of their skull. The biggest disadvantage this has is that owls are unable to roll their eyes sarcastically. Also, no side eye from an owl. It really limits their sass ability. 
Practically, what this means is if the owl wants to look at anything, it needs to point its whole face in that direction. And in part, this is why they need to twist their necks so far. I mean, if you can't swivel your eyes, at least you can swivel your head. Owls are, of course, famous for their hyperbendy necks, but contrary to popular belief, they cannot turn their heads a full 360 degrees. No, sadly they're limited to 270. How far is 270 degrees? It's like turning your head to the left if you wanted to look right. They can do a three-quarter turn. Still pretty impressive. In effect, this means they can keep bodily movements to a minimum and reduce the amount of sound they make while looking around and waiting for prey. So how does an owl do this? Well, first we should note that having a bendy neck is not unusual in the bird kingdom. Nearly all birds can twist their necks almost 180 degrees. This is because most birds have 10 vertebrae in their neck compared to our measly 7. That's why we can only turn our heads about 90 degrees. Extra vertebrae means more flexibility. But owls? Owls have even more again. They have 14 vertebrae. But even that is not enough to go as far as they do, because there is another problem to overcome if you want to turn your head that far. Because if you turn your head that far, you run the risk of cutting off the blood supply to your brain. I mean, you try twisting a garden hose that much and see what water comes out. You can try it with your own neck if you like, and see how long it takes you to give yourself a stroke. Or break your spinal cord. You know, one of the two will happen first. Actually, maybe don't try that. So how do owls do it without pinching off their arteries? Well, in all mammals, within the vertebrae that support the blood vessels, there are little holes that the vessels thread through. For an owl, these holes are huge, up to ten times larger than the arteries would normally need. This creates extra wriggle room for the arteries to move about during extreme head turns. And, unlike most other animals, the owl's arteries actually get a little wider at the top. Usually, arteries get narrower the further away from the heart you go. It is speculated that this widening at the top of the neck may create a little reservoir where fresh blood can pool during hyper-extreme head turns which the owl's brain can draw upon to prevent a stroke from occurring. So, yeah, owl head turns. There was a lot of engineering that went into them. Now, the neck is handy for turning the owl's eyes to where they need to point, but the neck also turns the owl's other, far more sensitive sensory organ to where it needs to point too, and that is their ears. As we have said, owls are low-light predators, so we would expect them to have good night vision. But as it turns out, while hunting, an owl relies far more on its hearing than its sight. The great grey owl, which lives in the high north, is capable of hearing a mouse scurrying under a snowdrift that is up to two feet deep. That doesn't seem like it should be possible, and yet, this is how these animals hunt under conditions where their eyes are of no use. So how do they do it? Well, first, we've mentioned already that owls have flat faces. Their faces actually serve a function, you know, aside from being a place to hold their eyes, mouth, and ears. The feathers on their face are shaped in a curious way. If you get a good up-close look at an owl, you will see that around their eyes, their feathers are kind of shaped like little dishes. This shape is no accident. They function in a similar way to radio telescopes. They funnel sound, amplify it, and direct it to their ears. Owls have satellite dishes on their face. Telescopes for sound. 
I don't know if there's a word for that. So that's fancy, but then the owl also has a second feature that allows it to precisely pinpoint its prey. Owls have asymmetrical skulls. I know for we people, symmetry is appealing, but owls reject this beauty norm. In an owl, one ear is always placed a little higher on the skull on one side than on the other side. They have unbalanced ears. This creates a slight difference when a sound reaches one ear than when it reaches the other. Using the small delay, an owl is able to focus in on where a sound is coming from, and when that sound reaches both ears at the same time without a delay, it means the owl is facing exactly where the sound is coming from. Have you ever seen an owl wobble its head around? Sometimes they bob in little circular motions. If you ever see an owl doing this, it is trying to get an exact fix on something it's heard. By sweeping its head through a couple of different positions, it can quickly determine the exact source of a sound. So, no, owls are not bobbing out to the latest tune, having a little dance. They are preparing for murder. And that neatly brings us to the next weapon in the owl's arsenal. Because once you have located your prey, you need to sneak up and strike it. And for the owl, that means silent flight. So, let's talk wings and feathers. No doubt when a bird passes by, you've heard its wings flap. Here's a pigeon flying. Classic bird flapping noise. Now, here's an owl flying. Did you hear it? Exactly. Owls fly on silent wings. For most birds, muffling their wings isn't an issue. Why does a pigeon need to sneak around for? The breadcrumbs aren't liable to scatter at the rustle of their feathers. Never feed a bird bread. Even something like a falcon doesn't care all that much about the noise it makes in flight because by the time it gets close enough to its prey for them to hear it, they're already dead. But owls are stealth hunters, so staying quiet is a big boon for them. Now, there are two features that help them do this, one on the macro level and another on the micro. Let's start with a macro level. And this is all about the shape of their wings and a little something called wing loading. What is wing loading? In the simplest sense, wing loading is just the weight of the bird divided by the surface area of its wing. In essence, it measures how much work the bird has to do to generate lift to get off the ground. And this is easy to understand. A heavy bird with small wings will have to do more work to get off the ground than a light bird with big wings. Now, owls have very low wing loading. Compared to their bodies, they have massive wings. It almost looks like they've got paddles on the end of their arms. This means they don't have to work too hard to stay in the air, they don't have to flap much, and they can spend more time gliding. Less flapping, more gliding means a quieter ride. Second, we can look at the micro level. To eliminate noise, they do this in a counterintuitive way. Along the leading edge of their feathers are a series of tiny serrations. While it may make the feather look raggled, it plays an important role in reducing turbulence and noise. The little fringes on the front of their feathers disrupt air currents, breaking up and softening the flow of the air that would otherwise become noise. Taken together, the feathers and the wings combine to make the owl the stealth bummer of the night sky. So with their great sense of vision, hearing and silent wings, the owl has everything it needs to catch its prey. The next job it has to do 
is digestion. Usually we'd skip over this point, but owls have a different way of doing everything. Owls swallow their food whole. Meat, bones, fur, skin, everything. It all goes down the hatch. Of course, not every part of a mouse is food per se. The owl's stomach acid does its job and breaks down what it can, but a lot of this stuff is indigestible. Bones and fur, things like that can't really be broken down by the owl. So instead of passing through the rest of the digestive tract, what happens is the owl regurgitates the bones and fur as a little pellet. An owl pellet to be exact. Think of them as a reverse number two. On average, it takes about six to ten hours after a meal for the pellet to be expelled. Many owls also have a habit of perching on the same branch, night after night. And so these pellets can build up in a little pile over time. Now, scientists love these pellets. By dissecting them and picking through the entrails, they can work out fairly accurately what's in an owl's diet. They also get used in schools and universities of the world over as teaching tools. Which means there's a bit of a market for owl pellets. And in the US, once properly prepared, they can sell for between $1.50 and $2.50 a pop, depending on its size and the species it came from. So, possible business venture? Reportedly, there is also a market on Etsy of artists who use the little bones and the pellets to make earrings, pendants, and other trinkets. And then, there is also the most lucrative market of all, people who use what they find in an owl pellet in their witchcraft rituals. Witches! It's a diverse market. Pellets, though, are not unique to owls, or birds of prey do it. It's kind of a consequence of not being able to separate the eaty bits from the junk bits in your food. Birds tend to scarf down whatever they can, so the pellet developed as a way to get the gunk they don't want out of the system to make more space for food. Okay, now that we've gone through most of the basics of what makes an owl an owl, it's time to look at the outliers, the owls that buck the trends. And the first owl we should consider is the snowy owl. The snowy owl is probably the most beautiful of all the owls, which is a big call, but I'm sticking with it. Its most obvious point of departure from the rest of the family is its coloration, the males being pure white while the females are white with black scalloped wings. Oh, and fun fact, Hedwig from Harry Potter, although a purportedly female owl because they used the more striking pure white version in the film, Hedwig was played by a male. Your childhood is a lie. But just as other owls are brown and mottled to blend into their natural surrounds, so too is the snowy owl white to blend into its arctic and tundra home. Next, unlike most owls, which are nocturnal, or at least crepuscular, crepuscular, it's a nice word that means active during the twilight hours, the snowy owl is diurnal, meaning that they're active through the day. Now, there is an obvious reason for this. In the high arctic, the sun doesn't set during the summer, so the snowy owl doesn't have much choice but to adapt to a life lived in the light. Maybe their most peculiar habit, though, is how they nest. Most owls make a home for their eggs in a tree hollow, or at the very least, on an elevated ledge. Not the snowy owl, though. They just slap their eggs straight onto the ground. To be fair, in the Arctic, they don't really have a lot of tree options. They will pick a slightly elevated place to give them a view of the surrounding region so they can spot any approaching dangers. Then they dig a bit of a scrape on the ground and call it a job done, which is 
pretty odd for an owl, but looks like the picture of normality when compared to the burrowing owl's habits. As the name suggests, the burrowing owl is a burrower. More badger than owl, these birds live underground. The burrowing owl is a bird of the Americas, partly migratory, the North American birds move between the United States and Central America, while the South American birds hang out down there pretty much all year round. Now, in one sense, their name is deceptive. Burrowing owls don't actively burrow. Sure, they live in burrows, but they do not dig them. There is no burrowing going on. Maybe they should be called burrow-dwelling owls. Instead, they move into burrows that other animals have made for them. They like to steal prairie dog or ground squirrel holes for their own nesting sites. Because they end up living on the ground more than the air, they have developed unusually long legs so they can see further and run faster. And it's a weird choice, right? Owls are famous for perching high in trees and swooping on their prey, not scurrying about like a mole in the dirt. And it's also risky. Birds live in trees for a reason. It's safe. On the ground, they have to contend with all sorts of predators like wolves and coyotes. But the burrowing owl has a strategy that keeps the prowling beasts at bay. If anyone comes snooping about its burrow, they will mimic the sound of a rattlesnake's tail. This hiss-slash-rattle is pretty effective at warding off intruders. Roll the audio! Just like a rattle, hey? And here's an example of the real thing. This is what biology-type nerds call Batesian mimicry, where a harmless thing pretends to be something dangerous in order to frighten their enemies. Kind of like fancy lying. But I guess if you have to scratch out a living in the dirt, you've got to do what you got to do. It is traits like these, though, and a willingness to change up their behaviours that have led owls to become such a successful family. You don't spread to every corner of the world without gaining a few quirks. And owls are quirky birds, as we have seen. But I hope that what we have seen is that the quirks that make them unique in the bird world have also made them so successful at what they do, namely being night-stalking, killing machines. At any rate, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Next time we are going to have a different discussion and talk about avian sleeping practices. Turns out they do not sleep like we people do. Now if you still want to see some more bird action, then I've got some good news. Our bonus podcast called What's Up With That Bird's Name has just come out, and this week it is all about the barn owl. If you've been listening to this episode and thought, hmm... I wonder why owls are called owls. Where does that name come from? Well, for the low, low price of just $2 a month, you can find out all about it. All you need to do is swing on over to Patreon forward slash Bird of the Week or one word link in the description to find out more. And if you're feeling especially generous and want to make a bigger contribution, then you too can get a special thank you from me in the show. Just like my good friends Jill Chalker, Jody Little, Debbie Hogue, Ennis of Senior Illustrations, and Richard Clark, the Minty Fresh. And as always, if you'd like to receive a bird in your inbox each week, then drop me a line at weekly.bird at outlook.com, and I'll add you to the mailing list where you will get a new bird lovingly delivered to you for free. 
each and every week. I mean, hey, who doesn't want more birds in their inbox? At any rate, thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in again next time. Until then, this has been Bird of the Week. Little Owlet in the Glen, I'm ashamed of you. You are ungrammatical in speaking as you do. You should say to whom, to whom, not to who, to who. Your small friend Miss Katie did, maybe green, tis true, but you never heard her say Katie do, she do.